heavenly creatures, sing of your holiness and your power and your might and your strength. Father, we come before you as your children. We come before you, those who are seeking your face and your name and your will. Uh, We come before you struggling in our own faith at times, wrestling with living a life that is obedient to you, living a life that is pleasing and holy to you. Father, I just ask you to continue to overwhelm us with your holiness. As you gave the vision of your throne room, the heavenly creatures are just glorifying you and lifting you up because they're all that they, you're all that they see. You're all that they desire. Give us that heart this morning. We desire your holiness in our life, your holiness coming out of our life. Father, as we open your word, Pray that your mercy fall upon us, that your spirit bless us with your understanding. Bless us with your truth. Father, I thank you that you are God, that you meet us where we are, and you take us to where you need us to be. So as we open your word, we ask you to just do that great work in us. Dig deep. Go to the places we have been unaware of. Go to the places that we know. But Lord, bring us to that place of reconciliation with you, with with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that place of repentance if we're living outside of your will, that place of being in awe of who you are. I thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for what's going to happen here. I thank you for just allowing us to again be in your presence, allowing us again to open your word and and to love on you by studying your scripture and hearing your voice speaking to us. So, Father, I pray that you give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the truth and a heart that is ready to be molded and shaped into your likeness. Forgive us if we have not worshipped you in spirit and truth in this place. But we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Praise in your son's name. Amen. Songs like that remind me of uh, the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, that was one of my favorites. Um, if, if you're familiar with hymn books, it was my favorite as a child because it was the first one in the hymn book, so easiest to find. And uh, so uh, it became one of my favorites, but as I grew up, it became more uh, real and the holiness of God. And that's the presence we're in right now, not because we deserve to be in the holiness of God and in His presence, but because He loves us and His grace and His mercy. And um, I've been praying for you all this week, has been preparing for today's message and been praying for myself because God has revealed some things um, that He's working on in my life um, through what we're going to be looking at. If you have your scriptures with you, if you have the Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn to John, the Gospel of John, New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, what is uh, known uh, more so as the woman at the well. But the woman isn't really the uh, most important part. It's who the woman meets at the well. You may be familiar with this passage of Scripture of of Jesus encountering a Samaritan woman and the conversation they had. And we're going to look at some of the things in that and how that relates to our life. But um, in the Gospel of John, um, 
It's, it's interesting to me that as we looked at last week at Easter, in John chapter 3, Jesus meets with a man by the name of Nicodemus, a religious ruler, a Pharisee, an individual who had known the law of God and the word of God. And the next major interaction Jesus has within the gospel of John is with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. There's a little separation uh, between the two, a uh, discussion about baptism and, and an argument going on between John's disciples because people are flocking to Jesus. And John says this incredible message there in, in verse 30 of chapter 3 that he must increase and I must decrease. He understood that it's not about who's coming to us or who's going to him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his holiness. It's all about putting him on display. And what an incredible message we need to have as a church and as, as people of God, that it's not about how many ministries we can do or how big your budget is or how big your building is or uh, how uh, fancy or professional your worship band is or preacher. None of that matters if you're not putting Jesus on display. That's the whole purpose as we gather here today is to put him on display and to hear him speaking into our hearts and, and molding us. But John chapter 3 has a religious elite that encounters Jesus. John chapter 4 has a religious outcast. John chapter 3 is a prominent Jewish man that is coming to meet with Jesus. And John chapter 4 is basically a Samaritan scoundrel. John chapter 3, we have a picture of a man who appears to have his life all together. We come to John chapter 4 and it's pretty obvious that this woman who comes and meets Jesus does not have uh, much together. You both have an issue in understanding the spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to teach them. And both have an opportunity to have this personal encounter with Jesus in different situations. Um, to understand what's going on here, first you need to understand what John is, is seeking to do, what he's led by the Spirit to do to his original audience. John is writing the Gospel of John after his own name to let us know and let his readers know that Jesus and God are one. And that Jesus came to make God known and reveal how God loves every single individual because they're made in His image. As we come into John chapter 4, we see many things that John is, is bringing out in his gospel about the deity of Christ and how Christ is the Savior and the Messiah of the whole world and how much God loves them. And in John chapter 3, we have the famous verse, of, For God so loved the world. When we come to John chapter 4, what we find is the fruition or the revelation of how God so loved the world is that He comes to all people and meets them where they are. Uh, the separation, again, is this issue of baptism, uh, which moves Jesus from leaving Judea and traveling to Samaria. So if you have your scriptures with you, we're going to pick up in verse 3 of chapter 4. And it says, He, being Jesus, left Judea, and He went to Galilee, and He had to travel through Samaria. So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was worn out from his journey. He sat down at the well, and it was about noon. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And let's stop there for a moment. And what's going on here? If we had a map in front of us, which we don't, I guess you go to the back of your Bible if you want to. Um, Jesus is traveling south to north. He's going from Judea to Galilee. And if you were to look on a map in Israel in the time of Jesus' life, you would see that between the two is this place called Samaria. 
And for a Jewish individual, Samaria was not a place you would go, not because it was a dangerous situation. It's because the people who lived in Samaria uh, were outcast by the Jewish people. They were Samaritans. They were considered half-breeds, lower than dogs. Uh, they had intermarried and, and begun relationships with people who were not Jews, were not Israelites, and they felt that they were corrupted themselves, made themselves impure before the holiness of God. So a Jewish individual would go all the way around Samaria. What we find here in chapter 4 is Jesus goes right through it. He goes right through the middle. The traveling would be at 120 miles, about three days journey because you're going by foot. And the language there is interesting in verse 4. It says that he had to travel through Samaria. Had to is kind of a funny word because he didn't have to. Um, it'd be like me saying, you know, if you wanted to go to Springfield, then you have to go down I-44. That may have been true at one point in time before we moved to Stratford, but now that we've learned some back roads, we know there's other ways to get to Springfield, right? Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. If he would have done like every other Jewish individual, he would have gone around. He would have doubled his time in traveling. He would have doubled the miles he had to walk. But what we see here is Jesus had to because he was so plugged into the will of God. This is why he had to. It was God's will that Jesus would go through Samaria and have this encounter with this woman because Jesus, being God in the flesh, would have known this woman is going to be at this well at this particular moment in time, and God wanted to reveal himself to her because she was hurting. So he had to. When he travels through Samaria, he comes to this town, and we're told that this was where Jacob's well was. Now this has significance not only to the Jewish people, but as we're going to see to the Samaritan people. See, Jacob would be Israel, and his son Joseph would be the individual that God used to lead the people of God, the Israelites, out of slavery in the book of, uh, or to help the people of God survive the famine in the end of the book of Genesis. And he would set up their exodus in the book of Exodus. And so is speaking of this historical background that only the Jewish people have, but the Samaritans have. And Jesus comes to the well. And if you notice, there's something we can read over so quickly and not even see it. But why did Jesus sit down at the well? He was worn out. He was tired. It was, it was hot. You're walking. And he comes to a place to find rest. And it shows us that even though Jesus was plugged into the will of God, one thing we need to understand is Jesus was 100% man. His flesh, his body was tired. So he comes to this well and he sends his disciples into town, which I imagine they loved that idea. But we don't have any of their conversation going in, just their thoughts and coming back out. And as Jesus is sitting at the well, just worn out, out comes this Samaritan woman. Now, we have to keep in mind, Jesus is God. He knows everything about this woman. He knew she would be here at this moment in time at this well. He knew that she comes out at noon, or some translations say in the sixth hour of the day. What that tells us is this is the hottest time of the day. This is not the time where people come out to get water from a well. Traditionally, they would come out in the morning or they would come out in the evening because it was cooler. They would come out in the morning to get water for the day. They'd come out in the evening to get water to get through to the next morning. And it was an everyday thing. This woman would come out every single day in the hottest time of the day. And notice one other thing. She's alone. Also not something that is normal. Typically, people would travel in caravans, whether it be women traveling together or women and children traveling together. But she's coming out alone, which shows us a, a bit of where she is spiritually and where she is within her own community. No one wants to associate with her. 
No one wants to be with her. And we learn through their conversation why that is, as she has made some choices in her life that have made her an outcast even among the Samaritans. But here is the Son of God, the perfect one, waiting for her to come out. And how does he initiate the conversation? Give me a drink. He finds a common ground because he understands that she's coming out to get water. He's tired. He wants water. And so he says, give me a drink. He does not start out by saying, you know what? You know why you're coming out here? You know why you're out here at this moment in time? It's because of all the decisions you made. If you just clean up your act, people may like you. No, he starts with something that they have in common. He doesn't belittle her. He doesn't make her feel worse than she already is feeling, the things she's already struggling with. What he does is he's come to this well at this point in time because he wants to show her the love of God. He wants her to know that God doesn't define her by the sinful choices she has made, but he defines her by one who's loved by him and made in his image. So he starts a conversation. What's interesting about this is because of the traveling that would have to occur between uh, Judea and Galilee, is that Jesus' own caravan, his disciples, they would have had a means to get water out of a well. We have to keep in mind, there are no rest stops. There's no gas stations. There's no restaurants you can pull off to the road and, and get a drink of water or go to the restroom. You had to find water, whether it's by streams or wells. And so you would carry a container which you could drop into a well and bring out the water because you, you had to survive. You didn't have water, you would die and traveling. You're traveling by foot in the heat of the day. So Jesus must have had his disciples take the container and go get water, go get supplies in town. I'm going to wait here for you because he needed to have this encounter with this woman. I believe he excused his disciples because if disciples would have stayed there, they would have been so distraught and so confused by this conversation. You see, for a Jewish individual, particularly a Jewish man, it was not right for them to have a conversation with a woman let alone a Samaritan woman. And for a rabbi, which Jesus is, is becoming known as a rabbi, a teacher of the word of God, he was not to affiliate with any type of woman. Matter of fact, it was looked down upon if a rabbi, even in public, would talk to his wife or his daughter. And here's Jesus, a Jewish man, a rabbi, a teacher, God in the flesh, seeing this woman coming out, knowing her difficulties, knowing her struggles, and says, hey, can you give me a drink? He also doesn't say, hey, let me give you something. But he's inviting her into this conversation. Because what we see here in Scripture as Jesus comes to this well is that we serve a God who breaks down barriers. The feud between the Jews and the Samaritans was going for 400 years. That's 400 years of resentment, 400 years of bitterness, 400 years of anger, 400 years of racism and segregation and discrimination. 400 years. And Jesus comes and he breaks down this barrier that God loves all people. He said it to Nicodemus, God so loved the world, and now he is showing it that God loves the outcast. God loves the ones that no one wants to be around, and God comes to meet them to show, him, show them how much he loves them. Our God breaks down barriers. The most important barrier is the barrier between us and him that is there because of our sin. Jesus came to break down that barrier. How sad is it, though, that many churches and many Christians today, instead of removing the barriers so people can have access to God like we do, instead put them up. I've been in churches before where <laughs> I was in youth ministry. I actually had a student come to church, never been to church or Sunday morning church, come to church and had a hat on. And one of our deacons went to that youth 
and say, you better take off that hat or leave. What do you think he did? See you later. Never came back. So many times that we, as Christians, we've lived with God and walked with God, and, and we can have in our own mind these things that people should do in order for God to love them. The way people should act when they come into church. And I, I, I believe there are some things you should and shouldn't do in church. I, I grew up in a preacher's home, okay? I, you don't run in the church. That was something that was just drilled into my head. You don't, you know, I used to love playing hide-and-seek under the pews. But you don't do that during church, I found out. Um, <laughs> my mom made sure that she grabbed my ear and pulled me out. Uh, there's things you do and you don't do, yeah, because it's just a matter of respect, but it's not a matter of righteousness. Jesus came to knock down this barrier between Jews and Samaritans, knock down this barrier that she was going to bring up in this conversation about being able to worship God and being in the presence of God. He came to knock it down to let her know that God loves you and God sent me to make you to allow you to have access to Him. So as we go out into the world, one thing we have to do is, is first see what Jesus did. He began with a common ground. And then don't put barriers up, but knock them down. There's a lot of misconceptions about church and Christianity simply because the church has preached something other than the gospel. You should do that. You shouldn't do that. That may be true, but that's not what makes God love us. God loves us because we're made in His image. Well, this woman is taken back, and she says, this is just the culture. How is it you, a Jew, verse 9, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. See, she's wrestling with this. She's not understanding that this man at the well is not a normal man. And so Jesus responds in verse 10, which I believe is the key verse in this entire interaction between the two. He says, if you knew the gift of God... And who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. To understand what the gift of God, we again just goes back to the last chapter, for God gave. That's the gift. Jesus is speaking about himself. But he also says living water, which is going to take this conversation to start with physical water and it's going to move it to spiritual water. See, living water implies that it is active and it is flowing. It is what is, the Scripture refers to as soul-quenching water. The psalmist declared it like this, As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. The prophet Isaiah used a similar description. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3 says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. Isaiah 55 and verse 1, it says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. When Paul begins speaking about the Holy Spirit, which what Jesus is, is pointing to, he uses images and language about quenching the Spirit and how we would drink of the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. This is what Jesus is pointing to. This woman is concerned about physical water. Jesus is trying to get her to a spiritual place to understand that the thing she is longing for in her life, what she's seeking for in fulfillment, is going to continue to give her longing. But he wants to give her something that is going to completely fill her and is going to overflow out of her. Now her understanding, again, is still at the physical place. She came to the well, did a drink, man asked for a drink, and now he's talking about some sort of living water. So her response, if you read on, should seem obvious. 
She's an outcast in her community. She's coming out here in the, new, in the heat of the day by herself. And here's this man saying, if you knew the water I would give you, you would never thirst again. And so she obviously says, give me that. That's what I want. Because it would be convenient. I want, I want that water that is going to fill me that I never have to come here. Jesus goes on and says, in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. He's speaking of the well water. It's stagnant. It's stale. Jacob's well was, was not a spring. It was just water. It was a deep well in which you continue to draw up and eventually it's going to run dry. Jesus was talking about a water that would continue to purify itself and continue to run freely and continue to give life. He says, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give, verse 14, will never be thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Every time I read that, I think of that song. Spring up, oh well. <laughs> never mind. All right. So verse 15, the woman says, give me this. So I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water again because this walk was a walk of shame for her every single day. If you can take this part of my life out, that would be awesome. If I wouldn't have to relive this every time I come out to the well, that would be incredible. Give me that water. And here Jesus reveals that he's not avoiding the situation or avoiding who this woman is, but he had to get her to a place where she had a longing, a desire. Again, I think all too often we can just beat the gospel into people when they're not ready. Jesus had to get her to a place where she was ready to have this conversation. And so he changes the conversation and says, well, go get your husband. Come back here. In verse 17, she has to have a confession. I don't have a husband, right? If you're familiar with the story, I mean... It seems kind of a strange place. It's like Jesus had her at a point where he could, you know, okay, you just admit, you believe and confess, and then there you go. But what he does is he reveals to us, before we can come to faith in Christ, before we can get the living water, the Holy Spirit in us, we have to come to a place of a reality of our sin. We have to understand that we are sinful people, we make sinful choices, and those sinful choices are what keep us from coming into the presence of God and having this living water flowing out of us. So even though she's ready, give me that water. He says, wait, go to your husband. And he reveals not only his human nature here in John chapter 4, but he reveals his godly nature. He knows this woman's life. He knows what she's going through. He knows the type of choices she has made. Even as a Samaritan, because she was familiar with Jacob's well. She would have familiar with the law. She would, have been, she would have known that God said you are not to divorce. You are to remain married and be with that person until death parts you. And you, and you as a woman, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband? But Jesus doesn't say that to condemn her, just bring her to the reality that she's been going for water in all the wrong places. And that's why it's not just a physical thirst she has, but it's a spiritual thirst. And he's offering her soul-quenching water. She confesses, verse 19, sir, because she still didn't realize who he is. I see that you're a prophet. I mean, I see you see things beyond regular understanding. And then what she does is what I think so many people do in these conversations, and we do ourselves, is she pivots the conversation. 
She moves it to worship. And I always thought this was just her trying to get out of that, that part of the conversation, dealing with her husband. But as I sat on this this week, I believe she's coming to an understanding that since Jesus is a prophet, he's speaking the word of God, and he has revealed that there's a part in her life that is not adhering to the word of God, is not within the will of God, that she would have all these relationships and all these, these things going on in her life. And she comes to this understanding, you know what? These things are not right, but to worship God, I have to go to the temple. And I can't go to the temple because the Jewish people will not let me in the temple. I am a Samaritan. I have been cut off. I am impure. So how can I go and worship God? Because you say he has to be worshiped there. Yet we worship him here. And Jesus drops this incredible nugget of truth there in verse 23 and 24. That God is not confined to a specific place of worship, but rather a specific means. Again, he's tearing down barriers. He's tearing down walls. He wants her to understand that God has come looking for her. And he's come to meet her where she is. Again, he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't try to get her back on the subject. But he continues to meet her with where she is. And so she comes to this understanding that she's heard of this Messiah, verse 25, and that he's coming and Jesus reveals, I, the one, am speaking to you. One thing I love about this conversation, I think it is an incredible evangelical model, is Jesus never speaks down to this woman. This is God in flesh. This is holy, holy, holy we were just singing about. And he never speaks down to her. She knew the things she had going on in her life. She knew what she was wrestling with. She knew the struggle she had. She didn't need someone else to point that out. I mean, how, how do you like it when someone comes to you and points out your flaws? Oh, happy day, right? Jesus doesn't do that. Why? Because he's letting her know that God loves her. God cares for her and God knows what she's struggling, what she's dealing with. The problem is, is she doesn't know it. She, she doesn't understand that she is trying to fill this need and this desire in her heart and in her soul with all the things the world can offer. And for her, it's relationships. She is running to relationship because she is longing for love. She's longing for acceptance. She's longing for that, that sense of being desired and being wanted. This is what's driving her to continue to go into these relationships. And she's filling herself up with dead, stagnant water. So Jesus says, I'm coming to bring you living water, something that is going to fulfill your needs. See, a lot of us are just like this woman in that we look for things in our life to fill up inside that aren't of God. And these things aren't necessarily bad, but we do it in things like our job and our income and our kids and our hobbies. We do it through the way we shop or how we shop or when we shop or how often we shop, the way we eat and extracurricular activities. We, we look for things to give us relief and fulfillment and satisfaction that only God was meant to do. And we do it. We're just like this woman at the well. I'm, I'm pretty bad about it. I have a rough day and I come home craving ice cream. Or a good burger. You ever had that moment, guys, where you just come home and you're like, I just want to sit here and stare at this screen 
I don't want to say anything. Every one of those days, you just feel totally wasted, totally worn out. You just don't want to deal with anything. You just want to just cut off and be done. Maybe a situation, maybe a relationship. What is it that you turn to in those moments to give you fulfillment? A lot of people turn to eating. Some people turn to shopping. Some people turn to sports. Again, these things aren't necessarily bad, but there's a danger to them. This woman kept going after relationship after relationship after relationship. Obviously, they kept falling apart because she wasn't really focusing on the one relationship she needed to have right. And so I want us to take away three things this morning before we leave. Our choices in life impact our love for God. Here again, our choices in life impact our love for God. A lot of times we'll make choices and that will become our number one desire. That'll be the number one thing we go after. And we get so focused, and, and I love focused people. My, my father-in-law is a focused individual. When he was a basketball coach, I mean, boom, always in basketball focus. Now that he's retired, it's, it's golf and grandkids. And just focus on the two, focus on two. And, and, and now that he's falling more in love with Jesus, it's golf, making other people fall in love with Jesus, and grandkids. And, and not in that order, but I mean, he's just focused. And it's always, anytime you did in a conversation, that is what he talks about. And so when it comes to our life and the decisions we make is what do we get focused on when times get tough? I love Southwest Airlines had that commercial a while back when someone's life was falling apart and there's that question, you want to get away, right? How many of us have been in that situation in life where if someone asked us, do you want to get away? We would emphatically say yes. But in that decision, when we want to get away, when we want to get out of life, when we want to get away from all the struggles and all the problems, what is it that we are turning to? So your choices impact your love for God. And the danger is, is we can make ungodly decisions that take us away from the presence of God. This Samaritan woman, she desired love. She desired to feel wanted and accepted. Unfortunately for her, she was misinterpreting what love actually was. And so she kept running back to these relationships, hoping to find fulfillment, hoping to find satisfaction, hoping to find that sense of, of being wanted and being loved and that sense of being whole. And the problem is she kept looking in the wrong places. What choices are you making? Is it bringing you closer into the love and relationship you have with God, your Father, or does it pull you away? See, by our choices, it impacts our love. Second thing is, by our choices, it impacts our longing for God. Our longing for God. Because if, if I can find something easy, if I can find something quick that'll make me have that sense of fulfillment, for even if it's for a moment, I'm probably going to run to that more often than not. This is why people run to addictions. This is why people run to relationships. This is why people run to shopping malls because they're trying to fill a need in their life. It gives them that sense of adrenaline. It goes off in our head and we feel like we accomplished something, that something is good. And so you know what happens? It feels good for a moment, but then the TV gets old. 
But then the phone needs an update or, or there's a new one that comes out ne the next month or the computer's not running as fast as it used to be or the car's not as shiny as it used to be or, you know, there's something goes wrong with that one thing that was so awesome. And so what do we do in that moment? Well, I need to get something new. I need, I, need, I need a new TV. This TV's not big enough. It's not crisp enough. It's not high def enough. These speakers aren't loud enough. This truck doesn't pull enough stuff behind it. I need a stronger truck. And so what do we do is we make decisions in our life to fill a longing. We want that, that sense of, you know, I have this problem. I mean, there's times I just get an itch. I want to buy something. I just want to buy something. Because for some reason I feel like I accomplished if I walk out of the store with something in my hand. Yeah, hey, I bought this today. And so I start turning to those things, those addictions, those, those shopping experiences, those gadgets and gadgets, and I start longing for that emotion and that feeling more than I'm longing for God. There's an old hymn by William Longstaff. It says, you need to take time to be holy. It takes time. God says, be still and know that I'm God. Wait on me. Be silent. It takes time. But see, we live in a world where you can have everything immediately. You can get a movie before it's even out to buy in the stores. You can download, download a song right on the day it comes out. You don't even have to go to a store anymore. You can get books and everything right at the, the, the tips of your fingers. You turn on the TV and you can watch exactly what you want to watch in that moment. The problem is that is not how our relationship works with God. And if we turn our relationship into immediate reaction, immediate response, immediate things happening, you are going to start longing for other things to do that. You have to take time. You have to be still. Be quiet. Just find rest in Him. I think so many people struggle in their relationship with God is because they get so impatient about God not showing up or God not doing what they want God to do in that moment. And so what do they do? They turn to something else. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that by the view of God's mercies, by what He has done, everything He's done for us, that we would offer our bodies as a spiritual or living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. And to do this, we're not to transform to this age or this world anymore, but we are to renew our mind. And some of us in this place, we need to renew our mind. This is what Jesus is trying to do with this woman. He's trying to renew her mind, trying to give her this understanding. You're going to things that are not going to give you fulfillment that you're desiring, but I'm willing to give it to you. I'm willing to give you the love you've been looking for. But you've got to come look for the living water. The last thing is our life choices, our choices in life, they ultimately not only impact our love and our longing for God, but our living for God. And this is how it works, because this is how it worked in my life. <clears throat> when I was in middle school, I've shared this before, I was about four feet wide, four feet tall. Ball full of joys, what I call. I was the guy that the old ladies like to pinch the cheeks. He's so cute. Yeah. And so what I desired in life, what I pursued after life, was I wanted to be accepted by people. I wanted friends. <coughs> and so that's what I was living for. 
I was living to please people so they would think I was funny, think I was witty. Maybe I'd find a girl who thought I was cute, um, and, and I would just be accepted. And so that was, that was my pursuit in life. By the time I got to high school, it turned to sports. And so I, I, I almost quit football when I was a freshman. My dad said, you started it, you're going to finish it, which was the best advice he told me because it, it led me on to be successful. I decided if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to be all in. And this is before, uh, I know Coach Esther, you're here, but this is before like football and sports were crazy where the coach would have camps all the time. It, you had to be like, you know, really into it yourself. So I go to the Y every single day and work out every single day, summers and all that stuff. We'd have summer camps in the morning and I go work out later in the afternoon. I was, this is what I was going to do. I was so focused. This is what I was living for. This is what I was going to be defined as. Middle school, I defined my life as being accepted. If I had friends, I was doing right. In high school, I defined myself, if I'm doing well in sports and I'm, and I'm succeeding that, then I must be doing right. And then I graduated high school and I went to college and I didn't play football in college and so I had to have a new thing to live my life for and so you know what it was it was partying and so I'm going to go to the parties I'm going to be fun at the parties I'm going to drink more than anybody else can drink and I'm going to forget everything that I ever did the night before and and that was my life is day and week after week after week and I was living for it I was pursuing it and then I went to SBU Southwest Bridal University and my focus I came back to God but my focus was I got to find me a woman Interestingly enough, it wasn't until I gave up that and realized that I was pursuing after finding some girl and, and dating somebody, when I finally said, God, okay, I'm done with it. And you're going to be my focus. You're going to be what I'm living for. It was in that God brought the right girl into my life. Got married. I wish I could say this to stop, but then you get married, and it's the American dream. You know, mom and dad who want to be grandma and grandpa, you can't go to Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner like, so when's the grandbabies coming? That's just an awkward conversation to have with your parents, by the way. But, you know, the American dream. You get a house, you have kids, you get a dog. So I felt, oh, I must be doing something. So that's what I've got to start living for. And I got into ministry. And you start reading all these books and you start seeing these preachers at conferences and on TV and you say, okay, well, that's what I've got to do. I've got to have the biggest ministry. I've got to have the most successful, the most exciting ministry. We've got to attract all the kids. And, and it doesn't matter like if, if discipleship has happened or depth is happening as long as we have a lot of people. And so I, I define myself in those things until I came to the reality that, you know what, I've been running after Stale water. Dead water. Because those are all worldly things. Those are things that will give you temporary satisfaction. And once you get past that hurdle, then you got to have another thing. And then you got to have another thing. i got to have the biggest boat. I've got to have the fastest car. I've got to have the best of this and the best of that and the best of this. And this is what our world preaches to us time and time again. Just go home and turn on the TV later today and just see how many commercials tell you you need to have this so you can be a better person. Or if you don't have this, then your life's not right. Jesus tells us here in the Gospel of John and what he's telling this woman is all these things of this world that we can chase after to try to define ourselves will only leave us lacking. 
wanting more. We'll need that next experience and that next high. But Jesus has come to give us living water that will flow out of us. We'll never be thirsty again. I have a feeling as I was getting ready for this week that some of y'all are where I was. Realization that there have been things in my life I've been turning to. I mean, things in my life that I've been finding fulfillment in that, again, aren't necessarily bad things, but just relying upon those things too much compared to my relationship with God. Just, am I willing to cut those out? Not not because God would love me more or less if I don't, but just to cut them out, just to long for God and live for God and to fall more in love with God. Jesus gives us this promise in Matthew 6, 33. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. And the context is all these things you can worry about. All these things will be added to you. All these things will be taken care of. Proverbs tells us in chapter 3 that if we trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding, we acknowledge God in all of our ways. He will make our paths straight. My question for you is, what have you been relying on? Has it been something to draw you to God? Where you feel that fulfillment and satisfaction and that living water in you like nothing before? Or is it something that is pulling you away? Because that's basically what our decisions make. They either draw us to God or pull us away. And in my life, I learned that faith fillers are faith killers. That thing I, I put my faith in and my trust in will kill my faith in God and what he can do. This woman had a choice, and what I love how this goes, John chapter 3 Nicodemus to have his conversation. The conversation just ends. The woman at the well in John chapter 4, the disciples come out and we have this revelation of what they're probably thinking. What do you want or why are you talking with her? Because it's not an ordinary situation. Verse 39 of John chapter 4. Jesus says, Now many Samaritans from that town, because the woman goes back to town and she starts sharing about this man she met at the well. They believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Now, that always makes me laugh because I'm thinking if I'm in that town, I'm like, yeah, everyone else already knows what you, you did too. But verse 40 says, so when the Samaritans came to him, why did they come to him? Because the woman understood that he had something she needed and he had something they needed too. So she goes and testifies. She doesn't deny who she is or what he revealed, but it brings an interest where people want to come out and see. And they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. So not only did Jesus go through Samaria where you shouldn't go, but he stayed there. Verse 42 or 41. And many more believed because of what he said. And when they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this is really the Savior of the world. They had a personal experience with Jesus. That's what we do as brothers and sisters of Christ. When we leave this place, is we go out and testify who Jesus is, and we bring back people to the living water. It amazes me that the people of God, the Jewish people, are not the heroes in these two chapters. Rather, it's the Samaritans, the outcasts. I don't know where you are with God right now. 
You may feel like God's out to ditch you or condemn you or judge you or belittle you, but what the reality of Scripture is that God loves you. And there's a choice you have to make. We've talked about life choices. There's a choice you have to make in this moment. Am I going to accept the gift of God and be given the living water? The Bible says to do that, I have to admit that I'm a sinner. I have things in my life that, that are not godly, things in my life that are not good, things in my life that are not pleasing. And that's my sin. And unless my sin's dealt with, I'm going to be eternally separated from God. The Bible says, if I believe Jesus is the Son of God, He is the Savior of the world as the Samaritans came to know Him, that He died for my sins and rose again, that I could be forgiven. And if I trust that and I accept God's gift to me, I can be saved. So we come to this time of invitation. Part of that confession is letting it be known. That's why I stand down here. If you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, just to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. Maybe you're here and you've already come to the living water, but you know there's things in your life you've been going to more than the Lord. And those things need to be, be done with. Maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father. Just tell God you're sorry. Tell God you're sorry you've been relying upon things in this world more than you've been relying upon Him. I don't know where you are, but I know as I was getting ready for this week, I just got convicted. and started looking at my life. What sort of things am I trusting in more than I'm trusting in God? The holy, holy, holy one. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you for revealing to us your awesomeness, your love for us. Father, forgive me. Lord, you know there's things I've, I've lived for and longed for and loved more than you. And Lord, it's just disgusting when I think about it. I thank you for just giving me this revelation, for speaking to my heart this week. Lord, in this time, this place is Become this time to respond. Father, I pray for those who don't know you. I pray right now you give them the courage, the willingness to step out and just to come forward and let it be known they want you in their life. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you just be with them. Lord, they, they know. They know things that they've turned to more than you. They don't need me to bring that out. Your Spirit's already working in our lives and revealing that. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, help us come to this place in time where we not only recognize it, but we repent from it. We turn away from it. We turn to you. I thank you so much for this day. I thank you so much for everyone here today. Thank you for loving us and your grace and your mercy. Be with us as we sing this song to you. Be with us as we respond to what you've laid upon our hearts. And pray this on your son's name. Amen. I invite you all to stand.